I think it's very important that we uh, sometimes cover subjects that are sometimes painful, sometimes they cause some heartache for individuals, and that's not our intent, but it's important that we cover them. You know, the Apostle Paul made some very serious mistakes prior to his conversion. Uh, we can read of that in Acts, the 26th chapter. In fact, let's just turn over there, Acts 26, and let's see what Paul says about himself. And verse 10 says, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So here was the Apostle Paul that was in part responsible for bring about the death of the saints. And we know the saints are the people of God. If we were living in the days of the Apostle Paul, some in this room might have been put to death because of the Apostle Paul. He says, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In 1 Timothy, the first chapter, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me Because he counted me faithful, putting me into his ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Now, I like the margin here for insolent man. It says, violently arrogant. This is how Paul described himself. He was a violently arrogant man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. We also know about King David. Now, he committed adultery, and he committed murder as well. Maybe he didn't do it with his own hand, but he was the one that cast a sentence over Uriah, you might say, and brought about his death. And yet we know that the Apostle Paul was forgiven by God. He didn't have an easy life. I think that Mr. Wakefield's sermonette was perfect for the subject that I'm going to cover today. The Apostle Paul didn't have an easy life. He was very zealous, but you look at the number of times he was beaten, the number of times he was shipwrecked, and all the things that he went through. Perhaps God allowed a lot of those things to remind him of some of the things he did. But God forgave him. And David, God forgave. He's going to be king over all of Israel. But for those that think that, well... He, he got away with it. You know, he committed adultery, he committed murder, but as I've heard some people say, he got the girl in the end. I've heard people talk like that. They don't understand it. But you read the rest of his life, it was never the same. There were consequences for the decisions that he made. And they were very painful, all the upheaval in his household, the wars that, that went on continually. All the problems that he had were, to a great degree, the result of the decisions he made concerning Bathsheba and Uriah. So nobody gets away with anything in that way, and yet God did forgive him. We don't believe in a cheap grace where nothing is required of us. God expects us to live by his laws. And he gives us his laws for what purpose? to help us to make right decisions. Because in the life of every one of us, at one time or another, one of those laws is going to look like we don't really want to keep it. You take the one against adultery. There's a time when somebody might be in a particular situation when to commit adultery might be very attractive. It might seem like the thing to do. And sin can be enjoyable. The problem is... It's only for a short time. And a lot of our young people seem to think that, well, just jumping in bed with somebody, there's no consequence for it. Or it's worth the consequence. And not realizing that it's a very bad idea. It's a very bad idea. There are diseases. 
There are unwanted pregnancies. And there's a lot of heartache. As one person said, you can't put protection on the heart, a particular kind of protection. I won't use the actual word. There is none for that. And so there are consequences to breaking God's law. And God's law is intended to help us to make the right decisions. But we also find, on the other hand, in Psalm 136, that God is incredibly merciful. He doesn't abrogate his law. He doesn't say that it's not important. But God does forgive, as we heard in the sermonette. In Psalm 136, he says over and over again how God's mercy endures forever. Notice verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 2, Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. And verse after verse after verse, he says, For his mercy endures forever. Now, I've begun this sermon with these examples Not because this is the subject of the sermon, but because it's necessary for what follows. The main subject of today's sermon is not the Apostle Paul, it's not David, and it's only partly about God's grace. But God's grace has to be understood in the light of this. Paul's life, David's life, and God's grace need to be understood in the light of this subject. Today I'm going to give a sermon that I've only given one other time, and that was very recently. After all these years of being in the church, I've only really spoken out in a whole sermon on the subject just recently. And I've also recorded a Tomorrow's World telecast on it uh, just a little over a week ago. It's the subject of murder and betrayal. The murder and betrayal of the most innocent and weak amongst us. I'm talking about abortion. And I began this sermon referring to the lives of Paul and David and God's grace for a reason. It would be my guess that about 250 people here, that at least one, and probably more than one, woman who is here has had an abortion. And it's very likely that there are also men in this room who have encouraged a woman to have an abortion, or at least not stop them from that. I'm just, I don't know of anybody, be honest, I have no idea if anybody ever has. I'm just saying, you get 250 people together, and based on statistics, it's probably likely that's the case. And I'm not here to condemn anyone. But it's important that we speak out on this subject so that our brethren, our our daughters, Our young women understand it, and our young men understand their responsibility as well. Because too many young men have gotten a girl pregnant, and then they've not stopped them from getting an abortion, but actually have encouraged them. Or they've thrown the decision on the girl and said, well, whatever you think. And that's despicable behavior. And it's my guess that just statistically, probably somebody is guilty of that. But I want you to know that there is forgiveness. And you have to understand that because of the gravity of the situation, because of the horrendous nature of abortion, that God does forgive even that. He forgave the Apostle Paul for putting to death true servants of God. He forgave David for committing adultery and killing Uriah. Now, that doesn't mean that we do, as as Mr. Wakefield was pointing out, that we decide, well, I'll just do this and then I'll just repent later because it doesn't work very well. There's still guilt that sometimes comes back years later, as we shall see in this particular sermon. Sin is against God, and while God will forgive upon true heartfelt repentance, we cannot take God's forgiveness lightly. And if we never address this subject, no doubt there would be some young people here who would make this bad decision. I know young people in church, nobody here, but I know young people in the church that have made that decision. Or children of members who may not be in the church today who have made that decision. And it's a terrible decision to make. 
We all need to know what the Bible says on the subject, and we need to understand the consequences of such a decision. Let's begin by turning to page, uh, not page, but uh, Psalm 128. Psalm 128. It just gives us an overview of, of God's attitude toward children and what our attitude should be toward children. In Psalm 128, verse 1, it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the eternal, who walks in his ways. Yes, there is a blessing for obedience to God. And I, I love that point that Mr. Wakefield made that, that, you know, God's way is the abundant way of life. It really is. The idea that the fun way is out there, it just, it doesn't, it's not, it's not true. The real fun way is here. Because the other has a lot of painful consequences. It says, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Some of the metaphors that God uses are a little difficult for us in our modern age to fully appreciate. You know, like olive plants around the table. Uh, that isn't something that we normally would think of in our world, but I, I think we get the point, don't we? There's an honor to have your, your children sitting around your table, uh, having a, a whole houseful, so to speak. It says, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the eternal. The eternal bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. And there's something special about grandchildren, isn't there? For those of you who are grandparents, I don't get it. I don't know what it is. Since I'm not a grandparent, I, I, I don't know. But I just know that everybody, when they become a grandparent, it's like they're more excited than when they had their own children. And I think sometimes children resent that. They think, well, they love my, my kids better than they love me. Well, maybe they're just more mature at this point in their lives. Whatever it is, they were happy when you came. It may have be that after you came and all the trouble that you became to them, maybe some of that, maybe some of that changed and now they want to start all over again with yours. And besides, they want to see the pain that you go through. So, whatever it is, there's something special about grandchildren, isn't there? Well, let's notice the 127th Psalm, the one just before that. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. When we go out apart from God's way of life, it doesn't work out the way we expect it to. It says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrow for he who gives his beloved, for so he gives his beloved sleep. And then he says in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord or the eternal. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Children are a blessing, a wonderful blessing. And yes, they can be tiring to be around at times. And yes, sometimes they keep us awake at night, but they're still a blessing, especially if they're raised properly and especially in the right society where things will be different in the future. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gates, or in the gate. So this is, this is God's attitude toward children. And this should be our attitude toward children. I was recently talking to my cousin in California. And he's been very successful uh, in business. He was... Uh, uh, the CEO of a, uh, and the chairman of the board of a medium-sized corporation, uh, did very well financially, lives in a very nice part of uh, Thousand Oaks in Southern California there. And um, he said, I feel like a dinosaur. I'm so out of touch with modern thinking. He's a few years older than me. Next month, he'll be married 55 years to the same person. He's not in the church. But he has two children who are still married to their first mates. One of them, 28 years, and I don't know about the other one exactly. He has four grandchildren. And one of those grandchildren, in his junior year of high school, already received a scholarship. He's being recruited by San Diego State to play baseball 
I remember seeing him when he was still pretty young, and he could throw a ball faster than I wanted to have to try to catch it in a small space. He's a pitcher, apparently good enough that in his junior year they've recruited him. But he's not just a jock, as they say. He's got a 4.33 grade point average. 4.0 is straight A's, but he's taken university-level courses, which when you get straight A's in those, that kicks up to your grade point average. In other words, the kids are very successful. When they sit around the table at American Thanksgiving, which uh, we've done with them in the past, they each take time before they start eating to go around the table with everybody to give something that they are thankful for. And there's one subject that is off the table they can't say. They can't say, I'm thankful for family. And the reason is because they take it for granted that everyone is thankful for family. And, you know, not being in the church... This is what family ought to be. Children who are successful, children who raise their children uh, to be successful in life, everybody staying together. He said, we don't know divorce in my family. But he looks at the world around him and he says, I I just don't, don't understand the thinking. Can't comprehend what's going on. This is not what most families are today. Most families today are shattered, scattered, broken up. Kids don't know who their parents are. And too often, because there's no fidelity prior to marriage, it creates a problem of a pregnancy out of wedlock. And it's difficult to rejoice fully under such circumstances. When two people are married and they're going to have a child, everybody rejoices. When someone gets pregnant outside of marriage, it's awkward, isn't it? Because parents have to be told. And sometimes, even in our modern world, that's still embarrassing, isn't it? And we don't know whether there's going to be a marriage there or whether one person is going to have to raise that child by herself, which is usually the case. Sometimes it's the other way, but it's mostly often, most often that way. And so what happens is that people make one mistake and then they compound that mistake by making another one. They take action which on the surface appears to be the easy way. And like so many things in life, like the prodigal son, what seems like the easy or the best way doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes, years later, problems occur. In the United States, since Roe v. Wade in 1973, women have taken the easy way out 57 million times and counting. And let's put it in proper perspective. That's 57,000 murders. Let's call it for what it is. 57 million they say 1,057 million murders. During 2008, in England and Wales, there were 200,000 women who took what seemed to be the easy way out. And I'm not letting the men off the hook because men have made, they've helped make that decision. Interestingly, who pays for it? Well, 90% of the abortions in England and Wales come out of the National Health Service, meaning the taxes of anybody who's paying taxes in that part of the world. We often hear that people have abortions because of all kinds of reasons, rape, incest, all this type of thing, but only about 1% of all abortions carried out, that's in England and Wales, and it's probably about the same here, were because the baby would have been disabled or born in some way that they, they didn't want them, the child. Only 1%. Now, if polls are correct, in 2012, Canadians favored unrestricted abortion by 60%. But I want you to consider, what does unrestricted mean? If it is unrestricted, that really means, if if that's what they want to say, that 60% of Canadians said that it's okay to, to have an abortion any time at whatever 
the time would be, even late-term abortions, even in the eighth month, if if that's true, if it's unrestricted. However, as a National Post article pointed out, this may have been more about Canadians showing their independence in light of an opposite trend in the United States. Americans were becoming more anti-abortion, and so uh, Canadians, uh, you have to kind of live there a little bit to understand it. Maybe that was a reaction that way. Even the National Post, a Canadian paper, said that it may have more to do with that than what they actually did believe, because I I would find it very difficult to believe that 60% of Canadians think you can abort an eight-month child. I, I just can't quite believe that. But whatever the reason, whatever it might be, one thing we know is that abortion is less popular the longer the child grows in the mother's womb. Uh, Twelve weeks and under, a lot of the population believes that it's okay for abortion. Second trimester, after that, to up to 24 weeks or so, it becomes unpopular. And when you look at third trimester, trimester, uh, you know, seven, eight, and ninth months, it's very unpopular. In other words, people don't want to abort or kill, let's put it the way that it should be, anything that seems to be human. If they can kind of imagine in their minds that this is just some sort of tissue mass or a blood clot, as sometimes it's described, or the product of conception, as it's also described, it's not really human. But once they realize that there's a human being there, they think differently about the subject. Now, you might be thinking that most people in our society are pro-abortion. And especially if you looked at millennials, you might think that millennials are pro-abortion. That's 20 to 35 approximately, or maybe 18 uh, but that, that group there up to about 35 we call millennials, and that's a moving target a little bit, what we call millennials, but that's just a general uh, sense of it. And you might think that they would be very pro-abortion because on university campuses they, 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 you know, they put down any, any uh, pro-life movement. Uh, the media points it out that way, that everybody's pro-li- pro-abortion, not pro-life, and they make pro-life people look rather ridiculous to every chance they get to do so. But I want to give you a quote here from uh, the book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. It's written by uh, Kirsten Powers. Now, Kirsten Powers, you might be familiar with, is on Fox News, but she's a liberal. She's one of the liberals on Fox News. She readily admits that she is very liberal. She is a social liberal. She is pro-homosexual. Uh, I believe that she's pro-abortion, although I'm not sure on that. I, I was looking for the uh, where, where she mentioned that, that subject, and she might have changed her mind because a, a number of people are changing their minds since the uh, undercover uh, uh, news item that, that came out where they they uh, interviewed a lady that worked for Planned Parenthood, and, and they've got her sitting over lunch uh, uh, talking there, and she is talking just matter of fact about, well, we, we have to be very careful because we can save the heart, we can save the, the liver, we can save the kidneys or something like that because there are people who want to buy those parts of aborted children. And it's so matter of fact, I think even a lot of liberals have come to the place where they've said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Kirsten, Kirsten Powers, very liberal, says this, It's worth noting that while university administrators and student government groups appear to embrace the pro-abortion rights agenda, the same shouldn't be assumed for all college students. A 2011 Thomson Reuters poll for NPR, that's National Public Radio, which is a very liberal uh, uh, news agency, uh, found that among Americans under 35, get this, Americans under 35, 65.5%, that's almost two-thirds, it's only a one point one one point less than two-thirds, 65.5% believe, quote, having an abortion is wrong. That is the highest percent of any age group, millennials. 
think that abortion is wrong. It was 57% for those between 35 and 64, and 60.9% for those older than 64. Now, what does that mean? It means that if we were all millennials here, two-thirds in the audience think that abortion is wrong. Now, there are many surveys on this, and so she then quotes the left-leaning Public Religious Research Institute, or PRRI. She says left-leaning, which the sense is that they might be slightly slanted in their, their survey. Report in 2011 that, quote, millennials are conflicted about the morality of abortion with 50% saying they don't think having an abortion is morally acceptable. So here are two surveys, one by a very liberal uh, organization, the other one commissioned by a liberal organization, and somewhere between 50 and 50% and two-thirds say that they don't think it's right. Now, I've done my own research on this as well, and when you look at some of the statistics, some of the government statistics, what you find is that it's somewhere in the 50% range. And it varies from year to year. It varies from month to month. There are years where people are against abortion by more than 50%. Sometimes it's less than 50%. But, of course, the real key is how the question is framed. That has a lot to do with it. And what we find, too, is that Millennials might think it's immoral to have an abortion, but at the same time, they think that you have the right to choose. So that's why you get such disparity in the way that these surveys come out. But here's Kirsten Powers' conclusion, and I would hardly agree with it. At a minimum, though, it shows that groups like Voice for Life do not represent a fringe view except to the illiberal left. She's written this book because she sees that the, this, you know, the, the, she calls them the illiberal left, those that are on her side of the aisle, so to speak, but they've gone off the rails, are trying to silence every other opinion and make everybody else look silly and foolish for believing what they do. And they want to skew the way that the public views it. And she's seen the fallacy in this, and she's seen that it not only affects conservatives, which is usually what it it does, but also it affects liberals who might say something that is not a part of the, the latest politically correct idea. When does life begin? Psalm 139. This is a very interesting psalm. Now, we often read this part of the psalm, Psalm 139. Uh, let's, let's start um, verse 13. It says, Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. God is responsible for how we are made, how we are put together. You know, when a sperm and an egg come together, it begins a totally new life, a unique life. Totally new, genetically. It says, you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Now, let's go back a little bit, and let's look at the context of all this, because this is an interesting, a very interesting context to what he writes here. Let's go back to verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or the grave, behold, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, is dark, God can't see. Even the night shall be light about me. God sees it all. Indeed, the darkness shall not uh, hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. There is nothing hidden from God. We can be in the darkest cave where there's absolutely no light, 
And, and for God, he sees it all. He sees everything. Isn't it funny about our human nature that we seem to think we can hide something? And, you know, that's the thing about abortion. People try to hide it. Do you realize that a, a girl, 15 or 16 years of age, can go in and have an abortion without your permission? Now, she needs your permission to go on a field trip. She needs your permission to be on the sports team. But you have no say about it. All she has to do is come up with about, today, I think it's about $600 cash, last I heard. And they want cash. They, they, they don't take checks. They don't take any. They want cash. That's the way it is. And yet she can do that. And maybe have one other person, a friend that's there with her. But it's kind of like it's all undercover and nobody knows about it. It's interesting here, he says, that, you know, where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? And then he says, for you form my inward parts. You cover me in my mother's womb. This is in the context of all this. It's not that it, I'm not saying that it was about abortion that this is written, but isn't it interesting? I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. Even the forming of life in my mother's womb was not hidden from you. There is no place to hide from God. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. My substance yet unformed. God saw when that first two cells came together and it divided in to three and four and so forth. God knew that. He says, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. Before I was born, God was there. He saw in the secret place. He saw that beginning of life and of the circumstances of it, you might say. There's a popular United Kingdom website called the Baby Center. And what's interesting is that you can go on there, and beginning in week four, it has little squares, and you can click on whichever square you want to and just move it back and forth. And you can tell exactly, uh, precisely, I say precisely, approximately what's taking place at any given week. Because week four is about the earliest that you're going to know for sure that you can prove that you know, you're, you're expecting there. You might suspect it earlier, but that's usually about the earliest that it can be properly detected. So they start at week four all the way to the very end. And so here's what is in a mother's womb at week 10. Now, I say week 10 because it depends on whether you're saying it's the 10th week or it's the end of the week. They, they, there's a little variation in all this. But here's what it says, because this is a stage that a number of abortions take place. Your baby is now officially a fetus. She's poised for growth and will more than double in size in the next three weeks. Your baby is now swallowing and kicking, and all her major organs are fully developed. More minute details are appearing, too, such as fingernails and a little fuzz of hair on her head. Your baby's sex organs are beginning to show at your dating scan, which should happen soon. You may be able to tell whether you're going to have a boy or a girl. That's at 10 weeks. Isn't it interesting that when you want to have it, it's called a baby? That's what they said. Your baby is now officially a fetus. But what do they call it when you don't want to have it? Well, let's let someone who worked in the abortion industry tell us. Carol Everett at one time ran five abortion clinics. In The Marketing of Evil by Capellian, she explains how counselors are trained to sell abortion to anyone who inquires. They, they sell it. They come in for just advice, what, what are my options, and they are trained to sell an abortion. Here's what she says on page 196. They were not told about the development of the baby. And notice she calls it a baby. 
or about the pain that the baby will be experiencing, or about the physical or emotional effects the abortion would have on them. They never tell the young lady that that, any of that. She points out that there are two questions that the girls always ask. Will it hurt? And is it a baby? And the answer to the second question is revealing. She says, no, would come the answer. It's a product of conception, or it's a blood clot, or it's a piece of tissue. That's what you were at one time, just a piece of tissue or a blood clot, according to the abortionists. They don't even call it a fetus because that almost humanizes it too much, but it's never a baby. No matter what stage, it's never a baby. Next, Miss Everett describes what she calls the two standard reactions in the recovery room following an abortion. Quoting her. The first is, I've killed my baby. It amazed me that this was the first time the patients called it a baby. But the second reaction is, quote, I'm hungry. You kept me here for four hours and you told me I'd only be here for two let me out of here. And Ms. Everett then says, that woman is doing what I did when I had my abortion. She's running from her abortion, not dealing with it. You know, how did we get to where we are today, where in the United States, 57 million children are murdered? What really got me started on the whole subject was I've I've read a number of things on it, but what really was a catalyst was Mr. Uh, Wallace Smith's commentary or a webcast on on Moloch would be proud, something like that, Moloch would be proud. You know, we read that, how they offered their children, they passed them through the fire, they sacrificed their own children. But we don't see that that's what we're doing here in our world today. And that was inspired by an article that took place in England where they were actually using aborted fetuses as part of the fuel for the fire to keep the hospitals warm. I'm sure it wasn't a major part of it, but just throw them in the trash, burn them up, and at least we produce some heat for the hospital. And that was a little bit too much for a lot of people. And if you read the comments, anytime you go on the Internet, you read comments below, what's shocking is how calloused, especially the men, were that, oh, well, at least we get some good out of it. Just absolutely mind-boggling, the callousness with which people speak of those things. So how do we get here? Well, first of all, abortion is big business. I did just a little sample here. As I said, I I know that abortion today, because I knew somebody that was going to get an abortion against her parents' will, and uh, she was not in the church, but but nevertheless, against her parents' will, she had to come up with $600 cash. And that was not terribly long ago, a couple of years ago, two, three years. Years ago, perhaps, I don't remember exactly. But at $400 a shot, $57 million, that's about $22.8 billion in that industry. Now, it cannot be denied that many in the abortion industry are in it for the money. No doubt about that. And we'll see a little bit of that in some of the things that I quote here. Well, let me just read one right now. This is Dr. Anthony Levitino. He says, why do doctors do abortions? There are many reasons. It's profitable. There's a lot of money in it. But there's philosophical things that come first. As I'm fond of telling people, if you are pro-choice and you happen to be a gynecologist, then it's up to you to take the instruments in hand and actively perform an abortion. It's the most natural association in the world. Along the way, you find out that you make a lot of money doing abortions. In my practice, we were averaging between $250 and $500 for an abortion, and it was cash. 
And the more you study into this, the more you realize that many, most of the the ones that are really into it big time, it's about money. But there are also workers that get involved where it isn't so much the money. And to say that they, they're all in it for the money is overly simplistic. And Romans, the first chapter, and verse 28, Romans 1, 28, a very familiar passage for us. It talks about when people reject God, he gives them over to a reprobate mind. Here it says in verse 28, Romans 1, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, or a mind void of judgment, a reprobate mind. It says to do those things which are not fitting. Once you get rid of God in your thinking, your thinking becomes depraved. It, 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 it lacks judgment, proper judgment. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody out there is going to do abortions just because they don't believe in God. There are people who don't believe in God and have come to the conclusion it's not the thing to do. But nevertheless, how do people get into this? Again, quoting from Dr. Anthony Levitino, he explained his worldview this way, and this is very instructive. I'm going to read a couple quotes here that are very, very instructive of how the world thinks and how you and I have to, to reach this kind of a mind. He said, everybody in the abortion industry knows that everyone involved in the pro-life movement is a kook. I know because CNN tells me so, and they would never lie to me. Now, of course, he's saying that tongue-in-cheek because Dr. Levantino has gone to the other side. He is now pro-life. But he's looking back on his life. And, yes, the media portrays it as though everybody who's pro-life is a kook. So you have a, a rally against abortion in front of a clinic... And what does the media do? They go out there and they start interviewing people until they find somebody that says something really dumb and stupid or is, you know, shaking his fist in somebody's face. They try to find the worst examples. They try to find people who are angry, people who are irrational, or at least express themselves irrationally, and those are the ones that show up on the evening news. And it makes everybody look that way. And so he says, I know because CNN tells me so. It's a little play on a song that you might have sung when you were a child about the Bible tells me so. That was his Bible. Linda Curry also worked in the abortion industry as a counselor. Here's how she describes her worldview. As a young person, I really valued freedom above all else. And I also viewed religion, particularly Christianity, and then I didn't say this on telecast, particularly Catholic Christianity as being cruel and stupid, really. I saw people on that side of the fence as being judgmental, boring, shallow, and anti-intellectual. So I didn't want to be anything like them at all. I thought they were quite pathetic. And so I didn't even want to consider their opinions. To me, religious people didn't seem to be engaged in what I thought was the real world. Religious people were in some sort of weird fantasy world. Not just pro-life people, but all religious people were kooks as far as I was concerned. So that's kind of the template that I'm coming from. This is the world that we're trying to reach. This is how many people think. One thing at the NRB that... You it came through loud and clear in talking a little bit about some of the surveys and all, it is that the number of people that we reach on a religious station is, or even another one, is very narrow. It's very small. It's a very small percentage. And one reason that religious stations don't do a lot of the research as far as audience goes, they'll tell you this is, this is the, the, the footprint. This is how many households we can reach. That's how they sell it. They don't tell you how many are actually tuned in. 
Because this is the attitude of many people out there. They just think religious people are kooks and nuts. Now, maybe it's a little different here in Charlotte. But this is how much of the educated world and the universities think. We're a bunch of kooks and nuts. Now, Levitino, again, Dr. Anthony Levitino, made this comment. says, I've heard many times from other obstetricians, well, I'm not really pro-abortion, I'm pro-woman. How many times have you heard that one? The women's groups in this country, they're not alone, but they've done a very good job selling that bill of goods to the population. That somehow destroying a life is pro-woman. But a lot of obstetricians use that justification to themselves, and I can tell you a lot of them believe it. I used to. It's not hard to be convinced of it. Well, especially when there's a lot of money in it. It's not hard to be convinced of it. Let me read a, another quote here from Dr. Levitino. You see, he wasn't just an abortionist. He was a gynecologist. And so abortion was only a small part of his, his business. He says, most of the time in our practice was spent providing obstetrical care for people who wanted their children. It is very common for an obstetrician to have an ultrasound machine. We use that ultrasound machine on a daily basis. As a doctor, you know that these are children. Notice, as a doctor, you know that these are children. Now, here's one who is a former, former abortionist. He says, we know that these are children. You know that these are human beings with arms and legs and heads, and they move around and they're very active. But you get reminded every time you put that scanner down on someone's, say, belly, you are reminded because you see the children in there, hearts beating, arms flinging. We have a ball with it. It's a lot of fun. We have people coming in who have bleeding and are afraid they may have a miscarriage. Now, this is someone who wants to have their child. There's no better news for me than to put that scanner on them at seven and eight weeks. That's pretty, pretty new in the pregnancy, seven, eight weeks, and show them a heartbeat and say, your baby is okay. You do that as an obstetrician all the time. And then an hour later, you change your clothes, walk into an operating room, and do an abortion. If you have any heart at all, it affects you. Interesting how human nature can justify Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end there are of the ways of death. Proverbs 14:12. One of the most interesting aspects of this story is how abortion took hold in the United States. Doctor Bernard Nathanson is now deceased, but very central figure to the whole subject of abortion. He and a Lawrence Later co-founded NARO. Now, NARO was the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws that was founded in 1969. It was changed, the name of it, afterward, after Roe v. Wade to the National Abortion Rights Action League and then the National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League. But it's generally referred to as NARAL, N-A-R-A-L. You can look it up if you want to find some information on it. But the bottom line is that they have been pro-abortion all along. So Dr. Bernard Nathanson and Lawrence Later co-founded NARAL. And it was these two men men, not women, who coined the phrases freedom of choice and women must have control over their own bodies. And then they went to sell abortion to the media because they knew if they sold it to the media, they could sell it to the population in general. So how did they do this? Well, Nathanson's own words from uh, Capellian's uh, Marketing of Evil says, knowing that if a true poll were taken, we would be soundly defeated, we simply fabricated the results of fictional polls. And I've, I've confirmed that from other sources as well, that he, he has said that. We announced to the media that we had taken polls and that 60% of Americans were in favor of permissive abortion. This is the tactic of the self-fulfilling lie. Few people care to be in the minority. 
We arouse enough sympathy to sell our program of permissive abortion by fabricating the number of illegal abortions done annually in the U.S. The actual figure was approaching 100,000, but the figure we gave the media repeatedly was 1 million. Or has he just added a zero? A total lie, which he admits, not only in Capellian's book, but elsewhere. Repeating the big lie often enough convinces the public. The number of women dying from illegal abortions was around 200 to 250 annually. The figure we constantly fed the media was 10,000. Now, once abortion became legal in 1973, January of 73, Nathanson went on to personally perform what amounts to about 75,000 abortions, well, personally performed 5,000 himself, supervised another 10,000 in his clinic, total of 75,000. He was, for a time, the director of the Center for Reproductive and Sexual Health. The the acronym uh, is very well done, CRASH. CRASH, that's the acronym, C-R-A-S-H. It was then the largest freestanding abortion facility in the world. But then something happened. Dr. Nathanson became the chief of obstetrics at New York Hospital, uh, associated with Columbia Columbia University in New York City. Now, the story that he tells is that technology changed his life. In 1974, Nathanson wrote, quote, I am deeply troubled by my own increasing certainty that I had, in fact, presided over 60,000 deaths. He also wrote that he performed an abortion on a woman whom he had impregnated. He was married four times. What happened with Dr. Nathanson when he started working for the hospital and they had all this new technology, the ultrasounds and uh, all the, you know, the, the, the instruments that could go inside the, the womb and see what was happening. He, he eventually came to the place where he said, this is my patient. This is a real human being. And it had absolutely nothing to do with religion. He's often quoted as saying abortion is, quote, the most atrocious holocaust in the history of the United States. He then went on to produce a film called The Silent Scream. Some of you may have heard of it. You can go on the Internet and look it up. It shows an abortion of an 11-week child, 11 weeks in the womb, and how that child is aborted, how it's sucking its thumb, and how the instruments come in there, and the child's heart rate goes from 140 to 200, and the child is trying to get away from the abortionist instruments which then literally, because it's so delicate, literally suck it apart. I could be more graphic, but I don't necessarily think this is a place. You can check these things out for yourself. Nathanson grew up Jewish, and for more than 10 years after becoming pro-life, he described himself as a Jewish atheist. In 1996, he converted to Catholicism, and he stated that here here is the reason why he converted to Roman Catholicism. Quote, no religion matches a special role of forgiveness that is afforded by the Catholic Church. I guess he missed the boat twice in his life. (laughs) But what you understand there is that here was a man that was racked with guilt a man who realized he made a mistake and stopped doing it and tried to go to the other side. And, you know, Pandora tried to put it back in the box unsuccessfully. He helped to release this evil on the world, and now he can't turn it around. Of course, now he's dead. Nathanson wasn't the only one to change sides. Linda Curry, who I mentioned before, had an abortion at age 24. She worked for Planned Parenthood thinking she was helping young women. That was her her thought. She was the one that had that weird idea or that thought that, you know, we're all a bunch of kooks and nuts. And for 11 years, she was fine. 
But things, questions kept coming up that bothered her. For example, a 16-year-old asked her, is it a baby? And she was conflicted because she said that she could say, in her words, well, of course it's a baby, which would be the truth. Or she could give the party line that she was taught to, to, to teach. It's a product of conception, which is true, but it's deceptive. She wouldn't say it's a baby. But then she had to go to a coworker and ask her, did I do the right thing? Her conscience began to bother her. And 11 years after her abortion, and she was old enough to know better in the sense she was 24 when she had her abortion, she changed to the other side and is pro-life. As I mentioned, Dr. Anthony Levitino also came to the other side. How did he do it? Well, they weren't able to have children. And when they realized they had a fertility problem, as he said, here he'd be aborting all these children and thinking, boy, I wish I could have one of those. But he said it doesn't work that way. But being in the position he was in, he was able to uh, find out some, some people that might uh, adopt a child. And after four months, he was able to adopt a child. That's pretty quick. It usually takes about three years. But nevertheless, he was able to adopt a child, a little girl. And then as oftentimes happens, as he said, his wife got pregnant and they had another child pretty close together, about 11 months apart. It's kind of hard for people to understand, but nevertheless, that's what happened to him. And then one day, and he remembered the day very clearly, and it was 7.25 in the evening, they heard a screech of tires out front, and his little daughter had been hit by a car. And even though he was a doctor, there was nothing he could do to save her life. And every day when he went back to the clinic, when it was his day to do abortions, he realized the value of life in a way that he never had before. And he finally couldn't take it anymore. He walked into a pro-life rally of some sort, meeting. Everybody knew who he was in town. And they were kind of shocked, and he was expecting a bunch of kooks and nuts. And he was treated with respect. And he realized the horrendous mistake that he had made in his life. And he has tried to put that evil back in the box again. Carol Everett ran five abortion clinics. She had her moment of change. And then there's Norma McCorvey. How many of you know Norma McCorvey? How many know who she is? Okay, one, two, one, couple, couple people. Actually, most of you know Norma McCorvey. You just know her by her pseudonym, Jane Roe, as in Roe v. Wade. Norma McCorvey now is a, a spokesman for the pro-life movement. She was used by attorneys who tried to get abortion, and she realizes the pain that's caused her in her life. There are a lot of people who have changed sides. These and many more have had the scales fall from their eyes, just as the Apostle Paul had the scales come off of his eyes. And he had to face the fact that he had killed true Christians. These individuals have come to the place where they have had to face the fact that they have literally ripped apart unique human beings. And that what they've done is morally wrong. Now let me add here that there's a, the whole subject of political correctness that we need to address here. A woman's right to choose. Freedom of choice. The product of conception. But you know, there are other things that are more subtle that we need to be careful of, such as taking a human life. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, because it's softening murder or ending a human life. We need to call it what it is, murder. And yet there are times when we have to be careful in the, where we are if we want to stay on television. For example, we might have to use the softer term. 
But I think that in general, we need to understand it's murder. Nothing less than that. Now, while the Bible doesn't say abortion is sin, we can clearly know the mind of God. For example, in Exodus, the 21st chapter, Exodus 21, and verse 22, it says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child, it doesn't say how old the child is, it just says a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly, as a woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So if she gives premature birth, but everything works out okay, he still has to pay a fine. But notice, verse 23, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, etc. Now oftentimes, uh, there was a, it could be commuted to a monetary settlement, but usually in the case of loss of life, uh, it was different. Murder was different. That shows us a little bit of a God's mind. Psalm 139, again, verse 13 and 14. You framed, I'm sorry, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God formed me in the womb. Oftentimes people ask the question, even in the church, I think there's a bit of confusion. What about rape and incest? Pam Stencil is a very powerful speaker to young people uh, talking about the, the evils of fornication. And she goes into a lot of details and everything. And she tells a story in, in her presentations. She said there was a, a young girl, I think 15, maybe 16, I've heard this many times over, but I should know. But I think the girl is 15 or 16, one or the other, who was raped. She lived in Michigan. It was after Roe v. Wade. This girl became pregnant from the rape, and she could have aborted that child. But she chose not to abort the child, but to have that child and adopt it out to a worthy family. Now, I've, I've seen this probably 13 or 14 times. We showed some of this at camp. And I have to say that every time I hear her tell this story, I get choked up. Because she says, I am that girl. Not, not the one that was raped. I am the daughter. I am a product of rape. She said, I did not deserve to die because of the sin of my father. I've never met him, don't know who he is, but I did not deserve to die. And here's a woman that's gone on to be someone that you and I would highly respect for what she is teaching to young people. I began by showing that the man who became the Apostle Paul oversaw the death of God's servants, including Stephen. But God forgave him. We know the sins that David committed. God forgave him too. They paid a price. No doubt both of them. And part of the price is guilt. And you get that in a sense from the Apostle Paul that he, he never could quite shake it all. And yet God does forgive for acts such as that. God could forgive Nathanson, uh, Levitino, Curie, all these others. God can, and upon true heartfelt repentance, God does forgive. And one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 103. I'd like to, to finish up with Psalm 103 because, you know, there's some things that, that we do in life, and we can never go back. We can't undo them. And I don't think there's anybody in this room that doesn't have regrets about something. I, I, I hope we all do. I, I wish we didn't have to, but we all have our regrets, whatever those regrets might be. Psalm 103. 
Verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. All. Every iniquity. If there's someone here who's had an abortion, someone who encouraged it or just kept quiet when they should have spoken up, if you've repented of that, God's forgiven you. We're not here to condemn. We're here to educate so that others don't make the same mistake. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from destruction. Notice verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. If God punished us according to what we did, we just cease to exist. Will God punish Nathanson for overseeing 60 or 75,000 abortions? He'll come up at a time, and I believe God will forgive him. Horrendous, horrendous acts that he committed. Spent the rest of his life trying to undo it, and no doubt racked with guilt. For as the heavens, verse 11, are high above the earth... So great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as east is from west, how far can you get east or west? It's opposite directions. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows just how flawed we are. So I hope that I I wish that nobody here, and maybe nobody has committed that sin. But it is a sin. It is murder. But God will forgive. And if you've repented, he has forgiven. But I hope the rest, for the rest, that we'll remember these things and not go down that road of committing murder.